and welcome back to the Historia Dramatica podcast. I'm your host, Willem Kahn. As always, thank you very much for listening. In the last episode of our series on the Meiji Restoration, we watched as the Civil War broke out between the supporters of the Emperor and the Shogun. In January 1868, the Imperial Army was able to win the Battle of Toba Fushimi, breaking the Shogunate forces and sending them into disarray. The Shogun himself, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, abdicated and vowed to live out the rest of his life as a monk. His stronghold, Edo Castle, was surrendered to the Imperial Army in April of that year. But still, forces loyal to the Shogun obstinately refused to submit to Imperial rule. Resistance continued in the northeastern part of the country, where a coalition of domains known as the Northern Alliance endeavored to place their own candidate for Emperor, Imperial Prince Yoshihisa, on the Chrysanthemum Throne. This plan did not work. The Imperial Army was sent after them and one by one the rebellious domains fell to their might. By the end of the year, the only remaining resistance to Imperial rule was concentrated on the island of Hokkaido, or Ezo. There, a group of shogunate loyalists under the leadership of Admiral Enomoto Takayaki founded a republic, the Republic of Ezo, in January 1869. This short-lived polity has the distinction of being the first republican state in Asia, but this experiment was not fated to last. In the spring, imperial forces defeated the republicans on both land and on sea, and on June 26th, Enomoto Takayaki surrendered, thus ending the last of the armed resistance to the Meiji Restoration. While all this was going on, the young Emperor Meiji and the ministers and officials who surrounded him got to work on reforming the Japanese government, society, economy, and military into something more closely resembling those of the foreign powers that had so humiliated them in the prior decades. To this end, on April 6, 1868, the Emperor promulgated the Five-Point Charter Oath. It read in full, quote, 1. Deliberate councils shall be widely established and all matters decided by public discussion. 2. All classes, both high and low, shall unite in vigorously carrying out the administration of the affairs of state. 3. The common people, no less than the civil or military officials, shall be allowed to pursue his or her own calling so that there may be no discontent. 4. Evil customs of the past shall be broken off, and everything based upon the laws of nature. 5. Knowledge shall be sought throughout the world so as to strengthen the foundations of imperial rule. End quote. The Charter Oath has already been discussed at some length in the last episode, so I won't dwell on it too long here, but it is necessary to understand the significance of the oath. The Charter Oath formed the foundation of Japanese politics going forward, and arguably to this very day. It is similar both in form and in significance to the Constitution of the United States. In the long term, the Charter Oath signified the new liberal democratic, even progressive, direction in which the Restoration government intended to take the nation. In the shorter term, the Charter Oath was promulgated in the interest of national unity. There was an ongoing civil war to be dealt with, and the nation would have to be united in order for the work of the Restoration to be carried out. The wording of the Charter Oath was left intentionally vague so as to appeal to the broadest swath of political opinion it could. So dedicated was the Restoration government towards the goal of national unity that it was surprisingly lenient towards its erstwhile enemies. The former shogun, Tokugawa Yoshinobu, as previously mentioned, was allowed to live out the rest of his life in seclusion, unmolested. The rebellious domains of the north that had fought against imperial rule were likewise rather unaffected. Their lands and properties were not seized, and their leadership was not arrested. For the most part, the punishment suffered by these domains was the forced resignation of their daimyo. 
Enomoto Takayaki, the admiral who had served as the first and only president of the Republic of Ezo, was convicted of high treason, but later pardoned in 1872 and was actually invited to serve in the Meiji government. Those in the Meiji government realized Enomoto's talents would be wasted if he was to be executed. Enomoto went on to rise quickly through the ranks of this new government, and is heralded as one of the founders of the modern Imperial Japanese Navy. And Enomoto's story is by no means unique. Several former Tokugawa officials were also pardoned of treason and invited to serve in government, including Katsukaishu, the man who had negotiated with Saigo Takamori for the peaceful surrender of Edo. For the most part, however, the Restoration government in the years immediately following the Boshin War was dominated exclusively by men from Satsuma and Choshu. There did remain one significant obstacle to national unity, the feudal Bakufu Han system. As a refresher, since it was all the way back in episode 1 of the series that I explained all of this, the power structure of the Tokugawa shogunate was thus. At the nominal pinnacle of the pyramid sat the emperor and the nobility of his court, but they were successfully sidelined from politics for the longest time and did not actually exercise any power of their own. The real top of the pyramid was the shogun, the military dictator of the country, whose powers were technically invested in him by the emperor. The government of the shogun was known as the Bakufu. As the central government of Japan, the Bakufu was responsible for matters of national defense, foreign affairs, weights, coinage, and measures, and other things of that nature. Owing their allegiance to the shogun were the daimyo, or lords. Each of these daimyo controlled a domain, or a han. At any given time, there were some 270 such domains that scattered across the Japanese archipelago. The hans were granted a fair deal of autonomy in terms of administration, but strict limitations were imposed on them in regards to economic and military matters, so that no one domain could grow powerful enough to challenge the bakufu. And, for 250 years, that was the case, but as the events of the past two decades had demonstrated very clearly, the feudal Bakufu Han system was not very conducive to maintaining political stability in these turbulent, modernizing times. In the more immediate sense, the nation desperately needed to marshal all available wealth and resources, and put them towards the project of enriching the country and strengthening the army. This simply could not be done with 270 polities acting almost completely autonomously of the central government. It was for these reasons that it was deemed necessary that the feudal Bakufu Han system be abolished. Surprisingly, four domains themselves took the first steps towards the political centralization of Japan. In the summer of 1869, the daimyo of Satsuma, Choshu, Tosa, and Hizen all signed a petition drawn up by Kido Takayoshi of Choshu. It read in part, quote, the undersigned subjects petition with reverent obedience. We respectfully opine that what the imperial government should not lose for a single day is its great polity. The great polity is that within the realm, there is no territory which is not owned by the sovereign emperor and no person who is not subject to him. The great authority is that the imperial government has the sole power, and that no one shall presume to own a single foot of land or privately possess as a single person. Now that the establishment of a new regime is being sought, it is essential that what the great polity consists in, and what the great authority depends upon, should not in the least degree be loaned. The abode where the undersigned dwell is the sovereign emperor's land, and we are his people. Why should we privately own them? Now, therefore, we respectfully restore our domains to the sovereign emperor. We pray that the imperial government, according to its judgment, give that which should be given, and take that which should be taken that all the regulations, from the ordering of laws, institutions, and military affairs, even unto the fashioning of uniforms and instruments issue from the imperial government, and that the conduct of all affairs of the realm, whether great or small, 
be placed under unified control. Thus will name and reality be made one, and our country put out on an equal footing of equality with countries overseas. End quote. What the undersigned daimyos were petitioning for, in short, was for the emperor to take back all political power from the domains. Emperor Meiji graciously accepted their proposal. The task before the imperial government was daunting indeed. The feudal system had existed before the 12th century, predating even the Tokugawa shogunate. A move to abolish it entirely would be to, in effect, strip the entire samurai class of their privileges. In 1869, around 2 million people belonged to the samurai class, equivalent to a little over 5% of the overall population. While they may have been small in number compared to the rest of the population of Japan, they still commanded the loyalty of the average peasant, most of whom knew of no higher political authority than their local daimyo. They also possessed weapons and the expertise to use them. In short, the samurai class had every means to rebel against the stripping away of their ancient power and privilege, and such a rebellion would be disastrous for the imperial government, still in its infancy. However, no such thing materialized, at least immediately. In the months that followed the petition of the four daimyo, each of the 260 other domains followed suit in voluntarily surrendering their powers to the imperial government. Emperor Meiji did not even have to issue an edict commanding them to do so. This astonishing compliance was partially thanks to the work of Okubo Toshimichi, who sought out Saigo Takamori and asked him to publicly advocate for the policies of centralization. Saigo, despite having officially retired from government affairs, still commanded the respect of all the domains who fought on the side of the emperor during the Boshin War. He reluctantly left his early retirement and ensured the compliance of all the domains who had fought under his command in the past years. As for the pro-shogunate domains, they had been so beaten down by the war that they no longer possessed the willpower necessary to further resist the imperial government. The arrangement wasn't all that bad for the daimyo and samurai, however. At first, the daimyo of the various domains were appointed as governors of their former domains, now renamed prefectures, albeit without their hereditary privilege and with far less political autonomy than they had previously enjoyed. All members of the samurai class were still to be paid their traditional hereditary stipend by the imperial government, but this arrangement was only a compromise. Two years later, in 1871, the government moved to further centralize the country, and, on July 18th of that year, Emperor Meiji issued an edict officially abolishing the domains and consolidating the 270 former domains into just 74 prefectures. The announcement read in part, quote, We deem it necessary that the government of the country be centered in a single authority, so as to effect a reformation in substance as well as in fact. All this is for the purpose of doing away with superfluidity, for issuing in simplicity, for removing the evils of previous empty forms, and in order to avoid the grievance caused by the existence of many different centers of government. End quote. As part of the emperor's edict, all daimyo were now compelled to leave their former seats of power and move en masse to the capital, far away from any power base which they could use to stage a rebellion. At this time, William Griffiths, an American missionary and teacher, was present in the city of Fukui, the seat of the daimyo of Echizen. In his writings, he described three incidents he witnessed in the wake of the monumentous decision to abolish the domains. Quote, the first such scene was that at the local government office, on the morning of the receipt of the emperor's edict. Consternation, suppressed wrath, fears, and forebodings mingled with emotions of loyalty. In Fukui, I heard men talk of killing Yuri, the penman of the Charter Oath of 1868. The second scene was in the Great Castle Hall, on October 1st, 1871, when the former daimyo of Echizen, assembling his many hundreds of retainers, 
bade them to exchange their loyalty for patriotism, and, in a noble address, urged the transference of local to national interest. The third scene was on the following morning, as the whole city of 40,000 gathered in the streets to take their last look as the daimyo of Echizen left his ancestral castle and departed to Tokyo, there to live as a private citizen and without any political power. It was more than simply a farewell to their feudal lord. It was the solemn burial of the institutions under which their fathers had lived for 700 years. End quote. The samurai class as a whole fared far worse than their lords. In 1873, their hereditary pensions were reduced significantly and made subject to taxation with the option to convert them into government bonds. The following year, that conversion was made compulsory. These actions were taken on the basis that the cost of continuing the stipends was simply too great for the new government to bear. They had the effect of impoverishing the former samurai. Most samurai were horribly unprepared to make a living in the new Japan. Most of them quickly blew through their stipends, and were now forced to take on menial jobs that would previously been unbecoming of their station. A poem written by Onuma Chinzan sums up the plight of the former samurai, who now found themselves in such a position. Quote, Rickshaw boy, why are you up so early? To wipe the dust from my rickshaw. My customers still haven't come, but I got up at dawn to be ready. What did you do in the good old days? I was a shogunate retainer with 3,000 koku. When I left home, I rode in a chair or on horseback. Proud, I was a samurai of high rank. Today, I have forgotten all that. I gladly carry merchants in my rickshaw. I pull people east, west, north, and south. All day long for a couple strings of cash. My wife and children are waiting for firewood and rice, and what money's left I gladly drink up in sake. End quote. On the other hand, the effective abolition of Japan's feudal class structure opened up many opportunities for peasants, merchants, and former samurai of low rank. The Meiji government was dedicated to the principle of meritocracy. Some authors have suggested that this wasn't necessarily a principled stance, but rather a pragmatic one. One of the biggest flaws in the old Bakufu was its reliance on officials who had acquired their offices through hereditary means. This led to bureaucratic incompetence and inefficiency. By giving those offices to those of demonstrated ability, the Meiji government hoped to remedy this flaw of the former Bakufu. As the Restoration government set about centralizing the realm, they also began to look outwards. In terms of foreign policy, Emperor Meiji and his government were far more progressive than his father, Emperor Komei. If you'll recall, the genesis of the Restoration can be found in the Sonojoi movement. Sonojoi, of course, meaning revere the emperor, expel the barbarians. There had been much fervor amongst lower-class samurai to fight back against the Western powers, who had so humiliated them in the years since Commodore Perry's expedition in 1853. However, Emperor Meiji and his government firmly rejected the joy aspect of Sonojoi. They did their utmost to cultivate close relationships with the foreign powers, the so-called barbarians. To this end, they ensured that the attacks on foreign persons and their property in Japan ceased immediately. The young emperor was so dedicated towards securing good relations with the foreign powers that he had actually agreed to meet foreign dignitaries in person, something absolutely unprecedented in the history of Japan. As mentioned previously, the fifth point of the five-point charter oath was, quote, Knowledge shall be sought throughout the world so as to strengthen the foundations of imperial rule. End quote. This meant that the government had the intention to dispatch diplomatic missions to the West to observe their practices and learn from them how to best reform the country. The Bakufu had attempted such a thing in the past with moderate success. The earliest attempt of the Restoration government of such a feat, that I can find reference to at least, took place in mid 1870. 
At this time, the Franco-Prussian War had broken out, marking the first time war between great powers had occurred in Europe since Napoleon. The Meiji government dispatched a mission of four samurai to observe this conflict. However, by the time they arrived on the front, the French had been all but defeated. The conclusion of the mission was that the French military, which Japan had previously looked to as the model for its own military, was weak and ineffective. They suggested that the government now look to the Prussian, now German, army instead. A German military mission was invited to Japan to assist in the modernization of the Japanese army. This mission did much to influence the development of the Japanese military towards the direction of the Prussian or German model. Now, I'm sure you're wondering something along the lines of, the samurai were the military backbone of Japan, how could the Meiji government effectively abolish the samurai when one of their explicit goals was to enrich the country and strengthen the army? That Japan needed a strong army was out of the question. It was needed not only to deal with internal disturbances such as uprisings by disaffected former samurai and peasants, but also to project power outside of Japan in order to emulate the Westerners. Although the samurai had been rendered more or less inert, they had not been done away with entirely. Some of the military reformers wished to keep the samurai class around to ensconce it in the new military system, with the men of the samurai class providing the officer corps of the new Japanese military. This proposal was rejected on the grounds that it was much better to have men of merit staff the imperial officer corps rather than samurai with hereditary privileges. Still, many people, including the samurai themselves, believed that the samurai class would still provide the soldiers for the new Japanese military. Fighting against this idea was Omura Masujiro, the vice minister of military affairs who, in 1869, proposed a system of general conscription, a system whereby men would be recruited into the army regardless of class affiliation. At the time, Okubo Toshimichi rejected the plan, calling it too premature. For his bold suggestion, Omura would later be assassinated by a band of ronin later that year. Not to be deterred, however, his successor as Vice Minister of Military Affairs, Yamagata Aritomo, held very similar convictions when it came to military reforms. He and Saigo Takamori's younger brother, Sugumichi, were part of the military mission that the government had dispatched to Europe in 1870 to observe the Franco-Prussian War. What Yamagata had witnessed there convinced him absolutely of the need to implement a system of conscription along Prussian lines in Japan. Some in government still remained somewhat unconvinced at which point Yamagata pointed to a more local example which supported his plan. He reminded his fellow officials of the story of the late Takasugi Shinsaku. Takasugi, if you'll recall, from way back in episode 3, was a radical imperial loyalist of the Choshu domain who, in the wake of the Bakufu's first punitive expedition against Choshu, raised a rebel army known as the Kiheitai and led them to victory against the conservative pro-Bakufu forces in that domain. Takasugi was unfortunately not able to take part in the work of the Restoration, as he died of tuberculosis in 1867. But his legacy was well known to the other men of the Restoration government, some of whom had actually fought beside him. By invoking Takasugi's example, Yamagata was able to get his way, and on the 28th of December, 1872, an edict was issued announcing the establishment of general conscription. This was followed by a further law issued on the 10th of January the following year, which clarified the requirements. Conscripts were to serve three years with the army and spend another four in the reserves. Furthermore, under this new law, no distinction was to be made between the samurai and the peasantry. The most important of the early Meiji-era diplomatic missions left Japan in December of 1871. The timing of this mission was actually quite important. 
1858, Japan had signed a series of treaties with the United States, Great Britain, France, Russia, and the Netherlands, collectively known as the Ansei Treaties. The terms of these treaties were heavily slanted in favor of the Western powers. Among other things, the Ansei Treaties granted the Western powers the right of extraterritoriality, a law whereby foreign nationals caught committing a crime on Japanese soil would be tried by their own government and according to their own laws, a fundamental violation of a nation's sovereign rights, and fixed import rates, which devastated the Japanese economy and made life more difficult for the average Japanese subject. Included in these treaties was a clause that stated that revisions could be implemented after the 1st of July, 1872. Thus, the aims of the Irakura mission, as it was called, were threefold. Firstly, they were to secure international recognition for the Meiji government. Secondly, they were to begin the process of renegotiating the unequal treaties. And finally, they were to observe these countries' systems of government, military, economy, and education, to gather intel as to how best to reform Japan's institutions, to demonstrate to the West that they were an enlightened nation worthy of equitable treatment on the world stage. The Iokura mission departed Japan on December 23, 1871. It was headed by then-Foreign Secretary Irokuro Tomomi, who gave the mission its name. Accompanying him were two of the three great nobles of the Restoration, Okubo Toshimichi and Kido Takayoshi, as well as Ito Hirobumi, a man who would go on to serve as Japan's first Prime Minister. The Irokura mission's first destination was the United States. They reached Washington, D.C. by late February. There, they attempted to engage in negotiations to revive the 1858 U.S.-Japan Treaty, the mission was informed by the Secretary of State that none of them possessed the proper credentials to engage in such negotiations, so Okubo and Ito had to make the long journey back to Japan to retrieve said credentials and subsequently return to the American capital. As a result, the mission spent nearly half a year stuck in the United States. Upon returning with the proper diplomatic credentials, the negotiations still went nowhere and it became very clear that the United States was as yet unwilling to renegotiate the treaties. Bitter at having failed in one of the principal aims of their mission, the Iwakura mission, according to one of its participants, quote, devolved into aimless wandering, end quote. In reality, the remainder of the mission stuck to a tight schedule, paying visits to 11 different European countries over the course of the year. Of these, the mission spent the most time in Britain, France, and Germany. Despite failing to obtain the treaty revisions that they were hoping for, the Iwakura mission was a great success in that its members had acquired personal knowledge of the Western world that they only could have acquired by going there. Historian Marius Jensen sums up the findings of the Iwakura mission as follows, quote, The lessons were clear. Japan had entered a highly competitive world in which victory went to the educated and the united. It should choose very carefully from among the models before it. Initially, American education, British industrialization, French jurisprudence, and German representational institutions held particular promise. It would have to modernize those institutions to establish its qualifications for release from the iniquity defined by the unequal treaties, thus postponing immediate gratification for long-term gain. End quote. What's more, the Iwakura mission inspired an entire generation of young Japanese students to travel abroad in search of Western knowledge. These scholars would end up providing Japan with a decent portion of it, the next generation of its leadership. Ever since the days of the Tokugawa shogunate, it was not the United States, nor was it Britain nor France that was considered the primary threat to Japan's national sovereignty. It was the Russian Empire, which was steadily encroaching on Japanese territory. 
the first step to building up a strong defense against the Russians was the development and fortification of Ezo, officially renamed Hokkaido in 1869. Put in charge of this project was Inamoto Takayaki, freshly released from prison for high treason. Under the leadership of Enomoto, the Hokkaido Development Commission pursued policies of immigration and development. Thanks to their programs encouraging immigration to the northernmost island of the archipelago, over 200,000 Japanese citizens immigrated to Hokkaido from elsewhere in Japan over the 1870s. The commission's budget was spent, quote, on the island's road and railway infrastructure, the opening of coal mines, new farming methods, and a range of other enterprises, including those related to beer, the precursor to the Sapporo Beer Company, fishing, canneries, hemp, sugar, and lumber, end quote. In a way, the development of Hokkaido can serve as an example of the Meiji-era industrialization and infrastructure building program in microcosm. But more on that later. The real issue vis-a-vis Russia was the island of Sakhalin, known as Karafuto in Japanese. This island, despite being further north and even less hospitable and more sparsely populated than Hokkaido, was host to both Russian and Japanese settlements. Both countries, therefore, possessed a claim to the island. Some sort of arrangement had to be worked out between the two countries as to the rightful owner of the island. A series of polite diplomatic exchanges between Emperor Meiji of Japan and Emperor Alexander II of Russia were the first steps towards this end, but they brought the sakhalin karafuto question no closer to an answer. It would not be until 1875 that Enomoto Takayaki was finally able to work out an arrangement whereby Sakhalin would go to Russia in exchange for the Kuril Islands, a chain of some 56 islands to the northeast of Hokkaido. But by the time the Treaty of St. Petersburg had been signed, other foreign affairs had captured the attention of the Japanese foreign policy establishment. Japan's relations with its western neighbor, the Kingdom of Joseon, also known as Korea, had been steadily deteriorating since the very beginning of the Meiji era. Korea had enjoyed a very close relationship with the Tokugawa shogunate, which shared its isolationist attitude towards foreign affairs. That is to say, Korea followed policies very similar to the Tokugawa policies of Sokoku, or closed country. Korea was not at all eager to deal with Japan's new outward-facing government. Throughout the duration of the Tokugawa shogunate, Japanese-Korean relations all had to go through the domain of Tsushima, the island which sits equidistant between the two nations. Now, the Meiji government wished to open normal relations with their Korean neighbors. Between 1870 and 1872, the Japanese government dispatched three different diplomatic missions to Korea, all of which were rebuffed. The Japanese saw the Koreans' insistence at maintaining its isolation as evidence of its backward ways, and in time, they came to view the Koreans in much the same way that the Westerners had initially viewed the Japanese. This attitude went both ways as the Koreans expressed their distaste at the changed appearance of the Japanese people, going so far as to say that men who cut their hair in Western styles and dressed themselves in Western clothing did not deserve to be called Japanese. In July 1873, a diplomatic crisis occurred when Korean officials discovered that Japanese merchants not belonging to the former domain of Tsushima had been conducting illegal trade in Korean ports. The Korean government issued a memorandum denouncing this violation of the 300-year-old international custom, and cited it as evidence that Japan had become, in their own words, quote, a country without laws, end quote. Historian Donald Keane suggested that this was not intended as an insult to the Japanese nation in general, but that is exactly how it was received by the Japanese. Japan's populace was enraged at this perceived insult to their national honor 
and the calls went out that Korea must be punished for its insolence, and the enlightened ways of the Japanese nation must be foisted upon them. Emperor Meiji was himself distressed at the insult of the Koreans, and he ordered Sanjo Sanatomi, who was acting as the de facto foreign minister while Irokura was still abroad, to deal with the situation. At a cabinet meeting, Sanjo informed the other members of the cabinet of the fact that, since the restoration, Japan had tried to forge normal, friendly relations with their Korean neighbors, only to be met with rejections and insults. He proposed dispatching a number of ships to the Korean city of Busan, nominally to protect the Japanese subjects living there, but mainly as a show of force against the Korean government. At this point, Saigo Takamori spoke up, stating that he opposed sending any military force to Korea, lest it worsen relationships with their neighbor even further. Additionally, such an action would make Japan seem as an aggressor on the world stage. Instead, he suggested attempting the diplomatic approach one final time. If the ambassador that the Japanese sent to enlighten the Koreans was rejected, and, in all likelihood, killed, then the guilt of the Koreans would be exposed to the international community, and it was only in that instance that the Japanese should punish the insolent Koreans by military force. Saigo put himself forward as this ambassador. It seems that he earnestly believed that the most likely course of action was that the Koreans would reject this good-faith diplomatic effort and put the ambassador to death, which, of course, suggests that he was hoping for war with Korea all along. He just wanted to make sure that Japan had the proper cause to go to war. In a letter that he wrote to Irokura, Saigo said, quote, if we fail to seize this chance to bring us into war, it will be very difficult for us to find another. By enticing the Koreans with such a gentle approach, we will certainly cause them to furnish us with an opportunity for war. End quote. This, of course, begs the question, why was Saigo so eager for war, and why would he put himself forward as the ambassador to the doomed mission to Korea if part of his plan was that he was going to be put to death? At this time, Saigo was suffering from an undisclosed illness since early 1873. He had come to believe that this disease was untreatable, and that death was impending either way. He wished for the opportunity to die a meaningful death rather than wasting away slowly from his illness. As for his hawkishness, it was not so much a matter of avenging Japan's national honor as it was a practical solution for Japan's current domestic problems. Saigo was very attuned to the plight of the former samurai class, and he believed that, in order to prevent a mass uprising of former samurai, it would be best to unite them against a common enemy in Korea, and give them a new identity as soldiers of the Japanese army. In many ways, this echoes the reasoning of Toyotomi Hideyoshi when he was planning his invasion of Korea in 1592, but that's a story for another series. Anyway, Saigo's proposal was attractive to the other members of the cabinet, and they voted to send him off to Korea. However, the emperor intervened and stated that no decision on the matter should be made until Irokura returned from his world tour. When the foreign minister returned to Japan in September 1873, he voiced his opposition to Saigo's plan. Having just returned from the West, Irokura maintained that at the moment, Japan was far too weak compared to the Western powers. A conquest of Korea would not be so effortless as Saigo had believed. It would instead be a drawn-out, bloody, and costly affair. Irokura was able to sway the rest of the cabinet to his position, and eventually the matter was dropped. Saigo was indignant, and he and a number of his followers, Itagaki Taisuke, Goto Shojiro, Eto Shinpei, and Sojima Tanayomi, resigned from the government in protest. Although the so-called Korean crisis was resolved in October 1873 with the resignation of Saigo and his allies from government, there was still widespread anger that the Korean insult had not been answered in a satisfactory manner. 
many turned their ire towards the government. On January 13th of 1874, eight samurai, all followers of Saigo's ally Itagaki Taisuke, attempted to assassinate Iwakura Tomomi for his part in defusing the Korea situation. Iwakura survived the attack, and his assailants were all arrested and beheaded. Another of Saigo's allies, Eto Shinpei, upon resigning from government went home to his native Saga prefecture, where conditions were ripe for rebellion. In Saga Prefecture, there were two diametrically opposed political parties which had formed in response to recent developments. One, mainly comprised of men 50 years or older, opposed the modernization and westernization efforts of the current government and advocated a return to feudalism. The other party, much younger in its composition, approved of the Meiji government's reforms, but disapproved of its handling of the Korea situation. They advocated for immediate war with Korea. Both parties felt that they had no recourse but rebellion against the government that had so failed the samurai class. They began to stockpile weapons in preparation for an armed struggle. Okubo Toshimichi attempted to defuse the situation by appointing a new governor to lead the prefecture, but said governor was not up to the task and only ended up making the situation worse. Upon returning to Saga, Eto Shinpei found himself becoming the leader of the rebel forces, uniting both political parties under one banner of revolt. On February 16th, Eto Shinpei raised said banner of revolt and led the rebels in an attack on government troops stationed in Saga Castle. They were victorious over the government troops who were poorly equipped and quite few in number. Upon hearing news of the revolt, Okubo, who felt to some degree responsible for inciting it, took charge of the government army that was sent to put down the rebellion. Now that the rebels were vastly outnumbered, Eto Shinpei began to worry. He had hoped that the disgruntled former samurai of Satsuma and elsewhere would join him in rebellion, but such a thing failed to materialize. On the 23rd of February, Eto departed the front lines, bound for Kagoshima, the capital of Satsuma, where he would court the support of Saigo Takamori. If this could be done, surely samurai all over the country would rise up in solidarity with the Saga rebels. However, this move backfired, as the rebels' morale was weakened by the departure of their leader, and on February 27th, the biggest battle of the rebellion took place on the border between the Saga and Fukuoka prefectures. The rebels, outnumbered, lost badly. The imperial army under Okubo then proceeded to reoccupy Saga Castle without great bloodshed. In Kagoshima, Eto found Saigo unwilling to join him in revolt. Saigo had his gripes with the restoration government to be sure, but he was just settling down to enjoy a quiet retirement in his native Satsuma. He wanted no part of this. So Eto left Kagoshima empty-handed. He tried to proceed to Tokyo to explain his grievances with the government, but while en route he was identified by a policeman, as a warrant had gone out for his arrest and his face had been plastered on posters throughout the country. The policeman, humorously enough, informed Eto of his arrest by saying, quote, Mr. Eto, it is my great privilege to arrest you, end quote. Eto Shinpei was then hauled off to Tokyo, where he stood trial on April 8th. He was found guilty after a trial that lasted less than a day and was promptly beheaded, with his severed head displayed prominently in public as a warning to other would-be rebels. Despite the failure of Eto Shinpei and the Saga rebels to accomplish anything, the Saga rebellion would not be the last of the armed rebellions of the Meiji era. The most significant of these, the Shinpuren rebellion and the Satsuma rebellion, were yet to come. But we will discuss both of these events, and further events, in two weeks in what will be the seventh and last episode of our series on the Meiji Restoration. Until then, if you have any questions, comments, concerns, or anything else of that nature regarding this episode, 
please feel free to email me at historiadramaticapod at gmail.com. Alternatively, you can address such things to me via Twitter or Facebook, links to both of which can be found in this episode's description. If you like the show and would like to help support it, you can do so by either becoming a supporter on Patreon or by purchasing some used books from me on eBay. Links to both of these sites will also be found in the episode's description. Anyway, until two weeks from now, this has been the Historia Dramatica Podcast. Thank you very much for listening. I'm your host, Miller Connor, signing off.